This is an ABC podcast. Well, Tegan, you know, past holidays, one of the things we could talk about is whether we got COVID. Did you get COVID over the holidays? No, I think in terms of diseases that I'm most at risk for at the moment, probably skin cancer's up there because I got a lot of sun over summer. Oh, that's good. How about you? Yeah, I didn't catch it either. And despite going overseas, each time I've gone overseas in the past year, I've got COVID. Not this time. So pretty good. Well, that's good. Maybe we don't need to make a show about the coronavirus anymore. I think we should. And you know one reason why we should? Why? It's episode 500. We've done 500 of these. <laughs> oh, wow. What a milestone I never hoped to reach. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into it. Coronacast, a show all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turable Land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. It's Wednesday, January the 25th, 2023. 2023, we're kind of rolling into it a little bit like, uh, for people who know Hamilton or know I love it, the beginning of the second act, Thomas Jefferson sort of rolls in there's been a war and he kind of starts his song up like, what did I miss? And I kind of feel like I'm bringing a little bit of a like, what did I miss energy to this thing? Like I've been having a great summer. Surely everyone else has as well. Norman? Well, not quite. Um, if you look at the data, the outbreaks in aged care facilities peaked at about 900 just before Christmas. They're down to about half that now. One very reliable data analyst, uh, D.B. Raven, has said that we reached 1,000 deaths this year, 2023, a week before we reached 1,000 deaths last year. And the rolling average of hospitalizations is somewhere between 2,500 and almost 4,000 over the holiday period. So it ain't nothing. And, of course, new subvariants keep on emerging. It is really sobering. I know I sounded flippant at the top there, but we were so focused on numbers a year or so ago that sort of come out of the public discourse somewhat. Also, we've been off air. It doesn't feel like it should be worse than 2022, which we know was a really bad year for COVID, and yet here we are. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the graph, the case numbers are low, the the peaks and waves are lower, which will be a combination of a couple of things. One is immunisation, although... The third dose immunisation rates have not budged over the holidays. Still about 5 million Australians have not had the third dose, uh, which means they're under-immunised. And that's not moving, which is a real concern. But also that the people aren't testing anymore. So we really don't know. Hospitalisations, deaths are unfortunately the, uh, the benchmark that we've got to follow. So uh, before Christmas, we were speculating or trying to sort of cast our mind into the, the crystal ball of just how high and when the wave that we were dealing with at that time was going to peak. If we look now at the historic figures, you can see that there was a big peak over the summer and it has dropped off now. So what comes next for Australia in 2023? So if you look forward to 2023, one of the countries we've got to look at is China, where there's been this massive surge with a rapid opening up over the holiday period and at least the Western holiday period. And the worry is, are we going to get new variants spinning off from China, which could pose a threat to the new world? And we saw barriers coming up to testing for Chinese uh, travellers coming into various countries around the world, including Australia. When you look at the data on variants from China, at least published data on variants, the Chinese are experiencing the same pattern and variety of subvariants of Omicron as the rest of the world. There isn't a signal yet that China has got a breakout of a new variant. It seems to be going like everywhere else. 
But that's not to say there aren't worries attached to that, because if you look at, for example, one of the variants, XBB1.1. Is that one called Kraken? No, I think that was called Hippogriff. I get lost in this jungle of names here. I'm actually loving the names. I know I shouldn't get excited about more variants of coronavirus, but uh, the, the names that some of the virologists in this space have decided to bestow upon the variants are just fantastic. Basilisk, Centaurus, Sphinx, Minotaur. It's like um, either reading Harry Potter or my ancient history textbooks from high school all over again. Yeah, we're just off to Mount Olympus. <laughs> The XBB1, and there's another one called BQ.1.1, those two variants are showing significant escape from existing antibodies, so antibody treatments and the sort of antibodies that are produced by the vaccine and previous infections. That's why they're taking over, because they do escape those uh, antibodies and therefore infect people, cause disease. What seems to be holding the line so far, though, are is protection from the vaccines against severe disease. So again, a bit of a, an immunology lessons. There's about three different barriers in terms of the immune system throws up. There's a non-specific barrier, and there's a much more specific barrier, which are antibodies, which come and attack the virus. And then the cells, the T cells, hold the memory here for the virus, and then they can come in with a, a much more potent response, which is longer term and deep seated. And that's thought to be the response that protects us against severe disease. And so far, we're holding the line on that, which is why these waves are probably getting smaller and the impact is not huge, assuming that you are well covered. If you look at the data on hospitalizations and deaths, it's the unvaccinated and the poorly vaccinated that dominate those statistics. And we are an under-vaccinated country, unfortunately. The big worry this year is whether or not there's a significant jump, step jump, beyond Omicron to a new variant altogether. Because pretty much all the subvariants that are circulating at the moment are all basically children of Omicron. Yes, but there's a problem that... So, for example, if you take the XBB1, it's called a recombinant virus. So it's a couple of viruses that have joined together. And the worry is for um, new variants and potentially new surges of the pandemic is that you get a recombination, say, with an animal virus or a version of COVID that's gone through an animal species. Then you get a recombination with one that's circulating in human populations and that jumps out and that foxes the T-cell memory and the cellular memory and the cellular response and then you can get a big surge in severe disease. So that we, we cannot relax about this. And the frustrating thing is that we still don't have proper global surveillance, amazingly, and we still don't have changes in regulations in terms of indoor air quality. And so we're not using this period to protect ourselves against what's going to come. Because inevitably, just like flu, what is going to come with COVID is that we'll go through years, let's say we're really lucky, and we have a, re a good year, it settles down. And by good year, it still means lots of people with long COVID, lots of people dying. We're just turning our backs on it. But there will be another pandemic. Whether it's in five years, 10 years, 20 years, we just don't know. Same as we don't know with influenza.
Mm. And that idea of global surveillance, we were so focused for a long time, especially here in Australia, on testing at an individual level, like do I have COVID, yes or no, but really that representative sampling of what viruses are circulating all around the world helps all of us to know what's around, less about the individual and more about the community. And engaging with uh, agriculturalists and veterinary officers around the world to see what's happening in animal populations and surveying those viruses as well. So let's talk about vaccines. You mentioned before there's still 5 million Australians who are eligible for third doses that haven't got them. What's the latest on the bivalent vaccines, the ones that also include a little bit of one of the earlier versions of Omicron and boosters? So the bivalent vaccines are a bit have been a bit disappointing in terms of the extra boost that you want to get from them, uh, particularly when you've got new subvariants like XBB circulating. And it looks as though they're not hugely more effective than the original vaccine. So you still get a boost, but it's not quite the boost that they were hoping for with the specificity that's likely. So, so they have been disappointing. And the question is where we go from here. And we're getting a lot of questions into Coronacast about where we go from here, when can we have the fifth vaccine, and so on and so forth. The, the Israeli data on the fourth vaccine, let's take the third vaccine. The third vaccine, there's really no debate here. You really do need a third dose to be adequately immunised against Omicron. The question then is what benefit do you get from the fourth dose? And while we are uh, well, people 30 and above are eligible for the fourth dose. The Israeli data suggests that it's really people 50 and above who benefit most from the fourth dose. And it's likely from the fifth dose that it's going to be people who are at risk and who are older that are going to benefit most from that. And the question I suspect that's bothering Atagi and some vaccinologists is whether we need to wait a little while to give the immune system a bit of a time to settle down so that you get the maximum response next time. But equally, they may have to change the vaccine technology so that it's much more specific to the variant that's circulating at the time rather than hoping that you're going to get a generic boost from a couple of Omicron variants and hoping that it's going to work for another sub-variant of Omicron is incredibly complicated. So one of the things that scientists have been looking at since very early in the pandemic was whether there were any existing medications that would work against COVID rather than having to rustle up a brand new medicine. They've been continuing to look at which ones work. Norman, what's the latest? Well, what's the latest is that there was um, some promising early data that an antidepressant called fluvoxamine might help in terms of recovery in people with mild to moderate COVID-19. There's been a randomised trial of fluvoxamine and unfortunately it didn't work. And an Australian trial, which uh, we talked about on the health report actually near the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was looking at drugs called angiotensin receptor blockers. Are they like... Um like blood pressure things? They're blood pressure, um, heart disease prevention drugs if you've had a heart attack. And they work on the same receptor, the lock and key receptor, that COVID enters the body. ACE2? ACE2. And so the idea is, well, if they block that receptor, why couldn't it work with COVID-19? Unfortunately, it didn't. It just shows you how complicated this infection is. But there has been some success in the past. You know, in 2020, the British showed very quickly that dexamethasone, a steroid drug, reduced mortality by a very significant percentage and very cheaply. So there has been some, have been some successes, but still we need to forget about some of the more infamous ones in the past. Dexamethasone is really the only one of the existing drugs that have really shown to be very promising. 
Well, I think uh, there are antiplatelet drugs, so drugs that thin your blood a little bit and stop the clotting process, they've worked as well. So it's not entirely a barren field. Oh, well, there you go. And yes, folks, we're, we're back, as you may have noticed from the last 10 minutes, and you can send in your questions, as always, to abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you next week. See you then. <laughs>